Please be advised that this episode contains mention of drug use and serious injury. There was a lot of anxiety waiting for the letters, a lot of checking the mailbox. I know both of our families remember the excitement when they'd bring that letter in, like, oh, that this must be from your friend. We would just be bouncing off the walls. It was just happiness. Could you fall in love with someone you've never met? How long would you wait to meet your crush? What if that crush turned out to be the love of your life? This is a story about unconditional love, a love that defies time and borders, a love that withstands difficult circumstances and overcomes insurmountable obstacles. A story of two people who, with almost 4,000 miles and an ocean between them, have found a love that was worth holding on to and worth waiting for. But what if all you had of your love was a handful of letters? I'm Tay Diggs, and this is You Had Me at Hello, the show where everyday people share their extraordinary stories of how they met and fell in love, and sometimes how things later fell apart. Love, its highs and lows, mess and drama, awkwardness and laughs. Come with us as we celebrate all of it. This is Letter to America, Part 1. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our story begins with Stephanie. She lives in Rosemount, Minnesota, a city rich in community, parks, and bordered by Old Man River himself, the Mississippi. It's the mid-80s. Stephanie spends much of her childhood playing outside with her older brothers. We would get to go to my grandparents' farm and drive the tractors and race on the snowmobiles. And if they aren't on the farm, they're with their friends playing kick the cup or zooming around on dirt bikes at the local basketball court, often well into the evening. All of our neighbors, we all knew each other. We all got together all the time. There was no worry about danger or what may happen because you knew that if you didn't see your children, the parents down the street did and everybody knew whose children were whose. For Stephanie, it's the perfect childhood. But in the mid-80s, when she's 13, her dad's job is transferred to Chicago. Overnight, Stephanie is pulled away from her grandparents, friends, and everything she knows. Trying to find where I fit in that was not easy. 
um, that's where I had to learn <laughs> about how to do my hair or how to deal with the natural curl or tone it down or clothes that I knew nothing about. I never felt like I fit in. Like any teenager feeling out of place, Stephanie finds solace in music. And the music that speaks to her is the anguished screams and distorted riffs of heavy metal. The first music I remember really being into was Twisted Sister. All I wanted for Christmas was a Twisted Sister cassette tape. After a short time in Chicago, Stephanie makes a friend. Her name is Nikki. Nikki helps Stephanie transition into her new Chicago life. Together, they hang out at the park and in malls. Not quite the zooming around on dirt bikes Stephanie is used to, but it's good to feel happy again, to not feel so lonely. One day, Stephanie and Nikki talk about seeing the world and share the places they dream of visiting one day. Nikki's number one destination is Norway. And later, when flicking through a magazine, she sees something that feels almost fated. She shows Stephanie immediately. She saw a listing in the back of a magazine where you could put your name, address, and get a pen pal and put from what country you would want to write to somebody. Nikki doesn't hesitate. She convinces Stephanie to get on board and together... They sign up looking for two Norwegian pen pals. Now they just have to cross their fingers and wait. It was when I was at high school, me and my friend saw the notice that two American girls looking for two Norwegian boys for pen paling. We almost instantly said, oh, we had to do this. This is Peter. Thousands of miles away from Chicago, he and his friend, Kenneth, see Stephanie and Nikki's ad and feel the same rush of excitement as the girls did when placing it. It's a pen pal match. Peter is from a small town called Elverum, in the middle of Norway, near Lillehammer. Three quarters of it is woodland, with icy lakes and rivers running through it. Just like Stephanie, Peter spends his childhood running around outdoors. Moving into his teens, the outdoors don't have the same appeal, and Peter and his friends learn how to make their own fun. I was kind of restless and rebel. As teenagers, Peter and his friends own their rebel status. They borrow their parents' cars, race around, windows down, their long hair blowing in the wind. Sometimes they even drive to nearby cities like Oslo or Drummond to go to concerts. And just like Stephanie, Peter is quite the headbanger. So we used to go to Iron Maiden, Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, um, Europe, the Swedish band, lots of concerts. So, with Peter and Kenneth a perfect fit for Stephanie and Nikki's ad, 
they set about writing to the American girls in the listing. When they're happy with their letter, they send it off on its 4,000-mile journey across the water to Chicago. They cross their fingers, and they wait. A few weeks later, Peter and Kenneth receive a reply. It was a quite little ad. It said, hello, we are two American girls in our teenagers. Um, and they said, I think 13, 14 years, I don't remember. And they live in mid uh, middle of United States in Illinois. Both of them like in the suburbs of Chicago. And that sounds exciting. Peter and Kenneth write back. And after that, it's Stephanie and Nikki's turn to write to them. Then Peter and Kenneth write back to Stephanie and Nikki and then, well, you got it. We knew that all four of us had a lot in common. Like, we liked the same music. We liked Motley Crue, Poison, Rats, a lot of the 80s hairband type music. As well as music, there is another quintessential teenage grievance that Stephanie, Peter, and their friends write often about. I remember um, both of us complaining about rules, and I think it, I think it was Peter who had been, been grounded recently and uh, complaining about that. Stephanie and Nikki find kindred spirits in Peter and Kenneth, but now they're curious about what these boys, who are a couple of years older than them, look like. Remember, this is the 80s. No social media, no smartphones. The girls decide they can't just ask for a photo. But maybe if they send pictures of themselves, then Peter and Kenneth will send some back. I mean, it would be rude not to, right? Stephanie and Nikki put a fresh roll of film in the camera and set up a photo shoot. The first set of pictures that we sent to him, I think we went through three or four rolls of of film out, you know, different parks, different poses, (laughs) different outfits to make sure that we found at least a couple good pictures to send back to them. We We were very particular about what we sent, but we didn't want to give the wrong impression either because we're like, well... If we don't hear back from them after this, we know why, because <laughs> we'll see after we put the pictures in there. Well, she had a typical 80s haircut, like curly, big hair, and I think it's a pink dress. It was a very, very pretty picture. Peter and Kenneth do the honorable thing and send pictures back across the ocean. When they arrive, Stephanie is tickled to find that she and Peter not only share a love for heavy metal, They also both dig the aesthetic. I remember Peter even had that 80s long hair, (laughs) a spiked on top look. With a clearer idea of the faces behind the letters, writing becomes even more thrilling, and they sink into a rhythm. A rhythm that seems unbearably slow compared to the instant responses we've grown used to. I write a letter, I put it in a mailbox, then it usually took two or three weeks before it arrived. And then it was another two, three weeks before the answer came back to my mailbox. And that was the highlight of the time back then, when I get the US mail envelope. (laughs) I left the rack in my room and open it. 
Oh, there was a lot of anxiety waiting for the letters, a lot of checking the mailbox. I know both of our families remember the excitement when they'd bring that letter in, like, oh, this must be from your friend. We would just be bouncing off the walls. It was just happiness. As the months roll by, Nikki and Kenneth's dedication to being pen pals begins to waver. They stop wanting to join Peter and Stephanie for the letter writing. And eventually, they lose interest altogether. And a year later, they had stopped writing. But Stephanie and Peter feel differently. The letters they send to each other have become an important part of their teenage lives, and they're not ready to give them up. They continue writing to each other on their own, instead of with their respective pen pal. And Peter wrote to me and asked if I would want to continue writing to him. So me and Stephanie picked it up and started writing with each other. I honestly didn't know if it would be more than one or two letters. I thought, oh, this guy will write to me for a couple months. And he does. And then he writes for a couple more. And more after that. In fact... Peter doesn't stop writing at all. Now it's just the two of them. Stephanie and Peter start to connect in a more honest and meaningful way. I don't want to say it was a diary, but it was kind of like that because I was going through so much with the move that it just really fit for me to be able to write anything I wanted in these letters. Like I could say anything and know that it was this one person reading it, that it wasn't something that everybody was going to see. And I could tell them everything I was feeling and everything I was going through, and there was safety there. The way she wrote, I remember she was open and friendly, and I kind of liked to share things with her because she started with sharing things with me. Peter opens up to Stephanie about his own struggles. He tells her about his suspected ADHD, a diagnosis he would later confirm, and his experimentation with amphetamines in a desperate attempt to try to manage it. Peter is nervous sharing something so personal with Stephanie. What if she judges him? What if she wants to stop writing? But instead, he finds understanding and support. Something inside Peter shifts. After a time with writing, I kind of felt like I could fall in love with her because she was nice and pretty and very, very nice to talk to. I don't think I'd tell her that I was afraid to scare her her away. Peter doesn't know, but Stephanie is also noticing an emotional shift. It was much more emotional. It was much deeper. It, It was much more being able to tell him things that I couldn't tell anyone else. Or if I was sad, I could talk to him about it in in these letters. And he did the same with me. We learned to really count on each other. As the years pass and the milestones go by, including graduating from high school, learning to drive, experiencing their first kisses, their friends moving away, Stephanie and Peter keep writing their letters. The 90s roll around, and as they celebrate the new decade in their different worlds, they start to wonder, could they actually meet? 
Letters are great, but how would a huck feel? Would the connection be as strong in person as it is in prose? After sending her usual letter to Peter, sharing her daily news and her excitement at the prospect of meeting, Stephanie counts down the days until Peter's response. She waits the usual few weeks with bated breath, only it doesn't come. She waits a little longer. A delay is always possible, although Peter has never been late before. Still, nothing. Stephanie knows something is very wrong. Could Peter be sick? Has he got sick of her? Or is there something he hasn't been telling her? And suddenly one of them said, do not look up, but there are two civilian cops coming around for us. They're heading our way. That's coming up. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In his letters to Stephanie, Peter is at his most open. He feels like he can tell her anything. But for the past few months, his life has been getting more and more difficult, and he hasn't been able to bring himself to admit it, to write it down, make it real. His experimentation with hashish has led to harder drugs, amphetamines. The amphetamines make Peter feel relaxed and focused at school. Struggling with ADHD, these are unfamiliar and welcome feelings to Peter, and his habits soon spiral into a substance use disorder involving a whole cocktail of drugs. And his friendship group has been slowly evolving from rebellious teens to lawless adults, getting into more and more trouble. One night, the wheels come off. We had drinking a lot of alcohol and take some pills and, well, look for action. One night when Peter is 20 years old, he and his friends steal a car and drive around Elverum until they get to a truck stop, a place where truckers stop for breaks. Peter and his friends storm the place. One of them pulls out a gun and everyone drops to the floor or hides under their tables in a state of terror while Peter and his friends grab the takings from the cash register. Then we got our money and run away and some car followed after us for a while, but we escaped. Everyone in the car breathes a sigh of relief. 
But Peter feels uneasy, like he's crossed the line he can't uncross. A week later, Peter and two of the others who were at the truck stop that night are walking around a shopping mall. And suddenly one of them said, do not look up, but there are two civilian cops coming around for us. They heading our way. Before they can even think about running, Peter and friends are grabbed, bundled into a police car, and taken to the station. When they arrive, they see someone they recognize. Their friend, the fourth accomplice in the truck stop robbery, can barely meet their eyes as he greets them. He has told the police everything. So we first think, what a stupid idiot, but actually not. Peter knows that getting caught now, rather than later, is a blessing in disguise. He's out of control and doesn't know how to change course. If we had not been caught, I'm afraid I might, might actually, hmm, maybe take a bank next time. While Stephanie is waiting for her reply, Peter is sentenced to 14 months in prison. When you sit in prison, the days was long, of course. Peter's days in prison are made longer as he cycles through feelings of disappointment, sadness, and shame. Added to all of that is the knowledge that Stephanie is waiting with no idea why he has stopped communicating with her. He hates that he has let her down, but he wants to wait until he has a clear mind before he writes to her again, because he wants to share openly and honestly like they used to. And he has to tell her the heartbreaking news. I probably would not get a visa into the United States because I have a sentence for armed robbery. When Stephanie finally receives Peter's reply, she can't believe what she reads. When Peter receives Stephanie's response, he can't believe what he reads either. She writes to him, I don't like what you did, but I know it wasn't you. She tells him that she will keep writing letters while he is in prison. She'll be there for him, just like always. Knowing that the person he trusts most in the world still believes in him, finally provides Peter with relief he has not yet felt. In prison, Peter settles in and spends his days going to school to improve his grades and working doing carpentry and laundry. The forced solitude of prison means that Peter has a lot of time to ponder what matters most to him. Peter finds a way back to his real passion, music. Me and three guys older than me, kind of old hippies, and there was instruments in that prison, so we figured, why don't we start a prison band? And we actually call ourselves the Jay's Birds. <laughs> How original. The band get together every week to play Bob Dylan, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones. The Norwegian prison system is centered around rehabilitation, and being able to play and enjoy the music he loves helps to revitalize Peter. And of course, Stephanie's letters do the same. Every time I got a letter, that was a highlight. And I could use all day read the letters after several times a day, and maybe even 
several days after another because every death letters was so nice and of course I write her and told about the prison life how it was Stephanie and Peter hold on to the fact that once Peter is out of prison they can finally meet but it's more complicated Peter's criminal record bars him from entering the United States so Stephanie will have to fly to Norway They count the days of Peter's 14-month sentence, writing, as always, and waiting. But in March 1992, a month after Peter's release, what starts as a normal day for Stephanie will end up changing her life and future. Stephanie has a health emergency that threatens not only their plans, but her life. When I was a freshman in college, I started... um having a lot of pain in my arm and in my ribs. And over a week's time, it progressed, and I started feeling my heart beating really odd. Find out what happens after the break. It's a week before her 19th birthday, and Stephanie doesn't feel right. She goes to her college's emergency room, then the hospital and the student health services, but nobody is taking her seriously. They, they kept saying that I must have um, popped my shoulder out while I was sleeping. They couldn't f- see anything else. And all they did was put my arm in a sling, and there's something wrong. Stephanie's not a doctor, but she knows this is no popped shoulder. Desperate. She calls her mom, who drives five hours to pick her up from her college and take her home. Stephanie is in pain for the whole journey, and the more miles they travel, the worse it gets. And by the time we got back up to their house, I was having a really hard time breathing. Stephanie's mom takes her straight to their family doctor and lets him know it's an emergency. He examines Stephanie and finds pneumonia in both of her lungs. Double pneumonia is serious, but Stephanie is young and fit, so he sends her home, telling her to go to ER if it gets worse. Well, within an hour after getting back to their house, my heart started beating weird again, and it got hard, really hard to breathe again. Stephanie's mom helps her back into the passenger seat and drives her to the ER as fast as she can without getting a ticket. They called my doctor right away, and he told him what tests to run, thank goodness, because he had an inkling of something else going on. And sure enough, I had blood clots in both my lungs. Along with the pneumonia, Stephanie has a pulmonary embolism, which means she has damage to her lungs, making it hard for her to breathe. This is deadly, if not treated quickly, and Stephanie has already been in pain for almost a day. Time is running out. They had warned my parents that there was a good chance that I wouldn't wouldn't make it because both lungs were so clouded and filled with pneumonia. I, I couldn't breathe. And at that point, I I remember looking up at my mom and thinking, I'm ready. Like I I'm ready to die. Like I, I feel I can't get through this. This is so bad. Readying herself for the worst, Stephanie tries to hold on, 
while the doctors work to save her life. They take her into surgery to drain the fluid out of her lungs and put her on a course of treatment to dissolve the clots and prevent further clotting. It's successful, and after a short time in hospital, Stephanie is allowed to go home, but her relief is tempered with what the doctors have told her. It's really unusual for young people to develop clots. She's susceptible to forming them, and it could happen again. It's a major life-changing diagnosis, one that means Stephanie's chances of having a child one day are very low. Alongside the emotional stresses, Stephanie will live under the constant terror of knowing a clot could form again in the future. It's an awful lot for a 19-year-old to go through. But there's something else. Stephanie is told that long-haul flights is just too risky. Her hopes of getting to Norway are dashed in an instant. When I, when I got sick and, and found out that it would be too dangerous for me to fly, it was a lot of emotions all at once. Through our teenage years, we both held on to that teenage fantasy that this is going to be a love story of eventually, when we're young, we'll meet in person and it will all work out happily ever after. So being told that that wouldn't be possible anymore, it hit me like a a brick wall. Peter can't fly to the U.S. because he has a criminal record. And now Stephanie can't fly to Norway because the journey would put her life at risk. The universe has thrown up two seemingly impossible obstacles. All they want to do is meet. It feels like everything is conspiring against them. They're devastated, but giving up on each other? That doesn't seem possible either. When I told him about the blood clots and how I wouldn't be able to fly, he was very supportive. It was, well, we'll figure it out. It's not that big of a deal, we'll figure it out. I told him a lot about how I felt like all my dreams were taken away. And and he was a big part of that, of that future that was now just gone. I didn't know how to come back from that, but having him there to tell me, it's okay, you know, this isn't the end of our friendship. This isn't where our our path ends. Y- you know, then that really got me through. Stephanie's world has been turned on its head, but the solace she finds in Peter is like home. He became my coping mechanism. He became where I would turn when I needed to vent things that I couldn't tell to anybody else. He would be the one that would get excited with me over exciting things happening. He's the one that would would always encourage me if there was something I was thinking about trying. And I was the same for him. These two young adults have been through it. Luckily, they've been able to help, support, and comfort each other through their difficult times. Now, they can't meet in person. Their wish for the other is that they can find true happiness and well-earned peace in their lives. They resolve to keep in touch, still dreaming of meeting, of becoming more than pen pals. Until that day, they will remain in each other's worlds as ink and paper. It's not hugs or kisses or walks in the rain, but it will do. 
As Stephanie comes to terms with her diagnosis, Peter settles into his life outside prison and works on keeping clean. They keep writing, still being there for each other, still hoping for more, and still pretending they don't see the brick wall that's between them. But some things are so terrible that reality has to come crashing down one way or another. And unfortunately, life has other plans. After helping Stephanie through her anguish, Peter, now 22 years old, is soon thrust back into his own. Back then in December 1993, I lived in Oslo with a lot of people. And I remember that I was sitting in my room and one of the girls come and knock at my door and said, it's your dad, he need to talk to you. I pick up the phone into the room and he said, are you sitting? It's about your brother, his dad explains. Peter's brother is an ambulance driver for the United Nations Army. He and his fellow soldiers were in the barracks cleaning their guns when one went off unexpectedly. The bullet struck Peter's brother in the head. He's in hospital, alive, but in critical condition. Peter rushes to be by his brother's side. He'd become a father just six months earlier, and no one wants to believe life would be so cruel as to rob his little girl of her father. The next 48 hours are tense and grief-stricken, and when they are over, Peter is in despair. Surrounded by his family, Peter's brother dies. That's strange, but one of his favorite artists, Frank Zappa, actually passed away the same, very same night. So I felt some comfort in that. So, dear brother, you have some good company with you when you travel up. Peter's grief sends him to some dark places. Earliest months and years, I kind of escalated my drug use to kind of escape from it all because it hurt too much. He was not only my brother, but also my best friend. I can't say that uh, I never get over it, but I have learned to live with it. After fighting to get clean in prison, Peter relapses and starts using again. He can't find a way through the heartbreak and mourning. He wasn't prepared to lose his brother, but his parents have lost their son. It doesn't feel right to burden his family with his grief. He writes to Stephanie and tells her what's happened. She knows what it's like to love an older brother. She knows Peter, she will understand. She will care. I felt so helpless, so helpless. Like, this person that means so much to me, and there was nothing I could do to help him except for write a letter that he wouldn't get for about a week and a half to two weeks, and that that was all I could do. It, it was a very helpless feeling. There's so many um, emotional things that I wanted to be there for him for, and I know he wanted to be here with me for, and we couldn't do it. When someone you love goes through something like this, all you want to do is give them a hug, hold their hand, put your arm around their shoulders, and just bear the pain with them. People often say, 
when faced with death, that there are no words. But words are all Stephanie can give to Peter. It throws the reality of their situation into sharp relief. Can you really be with someone you never get to meet? After all life has thrown them, Stephanie finally lets go of the dream of them uniting. She'll help him through this the only way she can, through her letters. They have been pen pals for nearly a decade. They know how to do this. They can always be pen pals, but they'll never be more. And so the years go by. Peter gets back on his feet and even starts dating. Stephanie meets someone too, a man named Chris. They've grown up. They've moved on. But can Stephanie and Peter really be happy with other people? Is this really the end of a love story that didn't get its fair chance of being written? The phone rings and it's him, Peter, calling me. He says, You have not to marry Chris. You better come over and marry me instead. No. Stephanie and Peter's story has only just begun. See you soon for part two of Letter to America. I'm Tay Diggs, and this has been You Had Me at Hello. If you have an incredible love story, please reach out to us at lovestories at sonymusic.com. We'd love to hear it. You Had Me at Hello is a Sony Music Entertainment production. It's hosted by me, Tay Diggs. This episode was produced by Bethany Hocken. The series producer is Martha Miller. Georgia Mills is the story editor. The production coordinators are E.K. Egbatola and Lily Hamley. Kat Moran is the production manager. It was written by Femi Keeling and the production team. Alciona Mick composed the original music. Scoring and sound design by Tom Drew. Isis Thompson, Louisa Field, and Tay Diggs are the executive producers. Special thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. Skip into spring this year with affordable styles from Shoe Show and Shoe Department. Prepare for the marathon you've been dreaming of with top-branded athletic shoes like New Balance, Adidas, and more. Look your best without spending the most. We have a large selection of dress and casual shoes that are under $30 and perfect for any occasion. Find your favorite brands this spring at Shoe Show and Shoe Department. We've got shoes for everyone and for every fresh beginning. Select styles under $30. Product availability varies by location.